1: Hey, this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And this is Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today we're doing kind of an inception episode. It's an episode within an episode. And that's because originally the idea for this one was Painful sex, particularly for women, but then it turned into so much more—an examination of pain, women, how we're treated when we're in pain. A lot, a lot of stuff. Stuff. A lot of stuff. The medical profession. Absolutely. There's a lot of issues. It, it kind of feels like the Hydra, where you you chop off one head and two more take its place. So we could probably do a mini series from this alone, and I would be very interested to do that. Same. But a disclaimer right off the top, we are not a medical podcast. So always, always, always consult a professional if you're concerned about something. I just like to say that because people yell at me about it all the time. Why are you giving medical advice? I am not. Okay. We're having a medical-based conversation. You're not giving (laughs) legit medical advice. We're not doctors. No, absolutely not. Okay. So let's, let's start out with the painful sex thing. Um, So what we're talking about is recurring or persistent, painful, penetrative sex, in this case vaginal, either before, during, or after, also called dyspareunia, mostly in regards to women. But we're also going to touch on women's pain more in general, more to come. According to the ACOG, three out of four women experience painful intercourse during their lifetimes, so a lot. This could be a passing problem, one that only comes up with certain positions or with certain partners, or a a long-term one.
3: A couple of reasons why this could be the case, having an active infection, like a yeast infection, chlamydia or UTI, ovarian cysts, having a skin disorder that might develop ulcers or cracks, vulvodynia, which is chronic pain in the vulva region, endometriosis, this is when the uterine tissue lining grows on other organs, um, which is very, very common, any type of hormonal change like menopause, Vaginitis, vaginismus. Now, basically, this is a condition where there's an involuntary contraction of the vaginal
1: floor and pelvic floor, which means that even putting a tampon or arousal can cause pain. You've also got pelvic inflammatory disease, childbirth resulting in tears in perineum, lack of sexual desire, which in turn leads to lack of sexual response or arousal and could create a painful experience. The reasons for that alone would make quite a long list. For instance, a big one is what's going on in your head, your state of mind. I, I know I've, I've seen this study before that's like a legitimate scientific study, but women are more frequently worried about how they look naked mm. than men, so they're like constantly in their head about it, and it makes it less enjoyable. That might make you feel more embarrassed or awkward and unable to relax, more tense. Um, there's the lack of desire for sex or for your partner, If your partner is experiencing a sexual problem, that might make you feel self-conscious. And then there's medication or a medical or surgical condition. All these things could be the culprit of why sex could be a painful experience for you.
3: Yeah, that is quite the laundry list of reasons. There are so many. And there could be one or more, right? You could have an infection and also, you know, have a tear. You know, it can be multiple things at once.
1: Absolutely, and I read so many accounts researching this of um, women who felt like they were failing as a partner because they couldn't have enjoyable sex and their partner wanted this thing, but they couldn't do it without experiencing extreme pain. So there's also the mental aspect of it as well. For most women who do feel pain during sex, it's probably centralized around the vulva, the vestibule. Um, which is what surrounds the vaginal opening or the vagina, but it could be in loads of other places or more than one area at once. The obvious advice if you're experiencing this is to go to an OBGYN or another healthcare professional, unless it's PTSD-related or something similar, in which case you would see a healthcare professional, just a different sort. (laughs) You're going to ask about your medical and sexual history, probably give you a physical exam or perhaps a pelvic exam or ultrasound they might prescribe something like pelvic floor therapy. This is still the go-to advice. We are not saying do not do this. But unfortunately, not all too infrequently, you might be told to just relax. Chill out. Take a chill pill. Or have some wine. That's a big one. I have been told this. Um, okay, well, as someone who deals with anxiety,
3: just telling someone to relax doesn't work. Nothing makes me less likely to relax than someone telling me to relax.
1: Me too. I used to have a rule. I I would still have this rule if I was in a relationship, but never, ever tell me to take a chill pill or anything like that. Yeah. (laughs) Do not do it. Because then you're creating two problems for yourself, really. (laughs) Yes. yes, Exactly. And all of this led Emily Saar, a woman who experienced painful intercourse, to invent the O-nut. What is the O-nut, Amy? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked, Bridget. Um, it is a donut-shaped stretchy silicone device that you place on the base of the penis. Sauer describes it as, quote, an intimate wearable that allows you to customize the depth of penetration. And when I first pitched this to Bridget, this is one of the reasons I love you, Bridget, I said, so there's this, there, there's this device. And he said, I'm in. <laughs>
3: Uh, yeah, I, I am all, this is maybe TMI, I I love a good bedroom device. (laughs) I
1: was was like, yes, tell me more, I want to know everything. It was great, it was the easiest pitch process ever. Um, Sarah made this herself, molding silicone into four rings with comfort ridges and a design to make sure that a condom stays in place. With the clinical testing out of the way, um, a board of medical advisors on her side, and a patent pending, she hopes to start shipments in October.
3: Wait, oh, like orgasm. Yeah, Is that why it's called
1: O-Nut? Well, it's donut and O-Nut. Yeah. Oh. It's, a, it's a, working on multiple levels. That's
3: smart. <laughs> that Emily is one smart cookie. Way to go, Emily Sour.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. So that was the impetus for this. Uh, I think we both saw that device and we're like, ooh, what is this? But it kind of led down this deeper rabbit hole, kind of centered around that glass of wine thing. But before we get into that, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
0: Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today.
1: And we're back, thank you, sponsor. Okay, so one of the things that might be a piece of this whole puzzle it has to do with something the medical community has dubbed the Yentl Syndrome, a phrase that originates from a 2003 study published in the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics called... The Girl Who Cried Pain, a bias against women in the treatment of pain. The authors of the study concluded that women are, quote, more likely to be treated less aggressively in their initial encounters with the healthcare system until they prove that they are as sick as male patients. It's sometimes called the gender pain gap.
3: So basically, we are not listening to women when it comes to us complaining about feeling pain. An article about the experience of women in the ER in the Atlantic featured this stat. The wait time for an analgesic for acute abdominal pain is an average wait of 49 minutes for men and 65 minutes for women. That means that a woman is in pain for longer, basically just hurting and complaining, and they are taking, it takes them longer to take her seriously and give her treatment for what she is experiencing, which is pain.
1: Yeah. The woman in the story, Rachel, she went to the emergency room for extreme pain in her abdomen and It was written by her husband, and the way he described it, it sounded brutal. When they showed her, like, how much pain are you in from 1 to 10, she said 11. And he said this was very out of character for her. So they get to the ER and were essentially patted on the head and told, we've got a lot of patients, wait your turn. The male doctor on call was so certain she was suffering from kidney stones that he never came back to make sure that that was correct. It took a whole shift change for him when he was replaced by a female doctor, when she looked at the results and realized it wasn't kidney stones at all, but ovarian torsion, which is excruciatingly painful. (sighs) And she had been, I think it was 13 hours of just intense pain and to be dismissed over and over. And the author of the article pointed out that if she had been a single woman and hadn't had, because he was there advocating for her. He was there like, there is something wrong. He was going up to, when the new doctor came in on the shift change, he went up to her If he hadn't been there, who knows how long she would have waited. God, that makes me so angry. Me too. This whole thing makes me very angry. (laughs) Another article from the Huffington Post specifically about pain during sex chronicled a woman named Mary who experienced such painful cramping during sex she'd cry in the shower afterwards.
3: Yeah, if you are crying in the shower post-sex and that's a normal thing for you, Like, something's up. That's not a normal... A medical professional who hears that, that should send alarm
1: bells up for them. Yes, absolutely. But it didn't. Doctor after doctor told her, essentially, drink wine, relax. Maybe the sex you're having is too rough. Or maybe it's all in your head. I bet so many of us have heard that. Because, of course, women are hysterical. And if I say
3: I'm... In pain, here are my physical symptoms, X, Y, Z. It's all in your head,
1: little lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just calm down. The founder of Stanford's female sexual medicine program at the Stanford Hospital says she was taught, taught to tell women reporting sexual pain to go home and drink wine. And I'm all for wine, Bridget, but that's not going to
3: fix any problems. I mean, wine isn't a, isn't a medical elixir. I love as wine. As much as I'd like to yeah, think so. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it is for me as a functional alcoholic. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but, yeah, it's like we, we, should not be doc- we should not be prescribing wine for people. As someone who is always advocating around mental health, if you, if you are a medical professional and you want someone to relax, you should not be saying go home and drink wine. Like, that's not useful advice.
1: No. No. And especially for people who might be struggling with alcohol. Yeah,
3: because what, what if you don't, like, what if You don't drink, or what if? What then? What? Oh, we'll give you Xanax, like, what, like, right? Why are we not treating the actual problems? Why are we pushing wine on women who are complaining, right? About legitimate medical issues?
1: It's infuriating. I'm infuriated. I know, I know. Oh, it gets worse. Um, but Mary. The the woman we were just talking about, with the help of a friend, eventually correctly diagnosed herself, and I know so many people in the medical field that hate that, but she diagnosed herself with endometriosis and got treatment. She'd also, because it'd gone so long untreated, she developed vaginismus as well. Wow. And after eight months of pelvic floor therapy, the pain she experienced during sex is now, for the most part, gone. But she, that was like 10 years of wow. pain. Wow.
3: Yeah, I, I had a similar-ish experience. I this is such a strange story, but I diagnosed myself with ovarian cysts from watching the show Real Housewives of Atlanta. <laughs> that is, a little... I know that sounds wild, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a character on the show, Cynthia Bailey, who and she's and we're in Atlanta now, so shout out to Atlanta. <laughs> um, she goes through, you know, my basically for most of my adult life, I had had intense. Like, my periods were always really intense. Like, yeah. they, my periods last for, you know, nine nine days. Mm-hmm. And they're often, like, very, very, very bad. And then I, I always thought this was normal. I didn't know that this was not normal. And I was watching Real Housewives, and Cynthia Bailey describes her symptoms, and she goes through the treatment of her getting diagnosed and treated in surgery for ovarian cysts. And I thought, gee, that sounds like me.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: One of the things that she said was that tabloids or whatever, often suggested that she was pregnant because she had a little bit of a bump. And it, And I'm a very thin person, but I have a little bit of a a little bit of a tummy, and that I saw a picture of myself in a clingy dress, and I thought, yeah, I do sort of look like, they're, like there's something going on. And I went to the doctor, and that's exactly what it was. So if I had not, because we don't live in a world that you know, where the symptoms of this. And by the way, for black women, ovarian cysts are so common and I didn't even i never even heard of it and it was this stupid reality show mm-hmm. that was the thing that made me even have it on my radar and, it, and I could, I know that doctors don't like it when you come in and you're like I know what the problem is but yeah. if we don't live in a world where our pain is treated like it's a serious issue and that we're not given the resources to figure out what's, what's up with us what like, we have to take things into our own hands and you know I'm, I'm glad that she did it and I'm glad that she was able to get some help and, and have less painful sex
1: yeah me too and i I have a similar experience, which is telling right there that we both have a have an experience like this, but when i I was fourteen, um I was experiencing just a lot of um headaches like un unrelenting they would last weeks, like very painful and i went to i was i was a person that hated going to the doctor. I would wait and wait and wait, but eventually it reached to the point I had to go, and I started crying during the appointment because it, it hurt so bad. They sent me to the gynecologist to get put on birth control for being hormonal. That was the...
3: That was your diagnosis for your headaches? Your like mind-numbingly four-day-long headaches?
1: Yeah. Did it work? No. It actually kind of backfired because some women have bad headaches, responses to yeah. birth control and I had a horrible response to birth control and to this day, I'm very hesitant. About going to the doctor, but also birth control. So basically,
3: you scheduled a doctor's appointment. You paid a copay for them to make it worse. Essentially, <laughs> <laughs> for
1: them to be like, mm, how can we make mm. your oh crippling
3: headaches? Let's double down on that.
1: <laughs> I got an ultrasound; <laughs> like it was a whole thing. And I, I remember being like, it happened so quick. It was a whirlwind of you need to go to the gynecologist, and I was like 14, so I said, I "Was a gynecologist," and then. Man, this is TMI, but I, I found out that um, if you use cheap pregnancy test, they tested me to see if I was pregnant. Um, you can show up pregnant; it says positive, and they called my parents and told them I was pregnant. It was a horrible day. It was bad. <laughs> it was really bad. Amy, I don't have the words. I oh man, I try not to think about it, but it Wait, is. Wait, how did you convince your parents you weren't pregnant? I think probably my hysterical like, sobbing. Well, I and I think about this all the time because the fear I felt when he told me, the doctor told me, you're pregnant. And my immediate reaction was terror. Just pure... because well, you were
3: 14.
1: Yeah, but I think about that all the time of, like, I used to, because I was a kid, and I, I then I got it in my head, like, how did my mom feel when she found out she was pregnant with me? It really messed me up is what I'm saying. It was a troubling... <laughs> It was a traveling experience to have at that young age. And you weren't even pregnant. No, no, no. And I never fixed the headaches. But I did, eventually, they became less, less of a problem, more manageable. And there's another study we should talk about uh, moving away from my tragic <laughs> experience. Um, there's a study that came out in 2017 that found that women... Are less likely than men to get CPR when they need it because boobies because they're people are afraid about the boobs and clothes. I thought that was funny. Well, I don't want to mess up her outfit.
3: Yeah, I'll let her die <laughs> on this on this parking but she'll lot. Be looking good, <laughs> man. When they bury her, to be looking her blouse is going to be in pristine condition. <laughs> yeah, it just goes to show how anxious society is around women's bodies. I mean, letting someone die on a floor because you don't want to touch their breasts and give them CPR or mess up their blouse.
1: Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous.
3: Yeah, if anyone sees me dying on a floor, you have permission to give me CPR.
1: Yeah, please. (laughs) Um, Women's pain is more likely to be treated with sedatives than painkillers as compared to men. And... They're more likely to be seen, as we've touched on by doctors, as emotional. That whole, women are emotional, it's all in your head, rather than a physical problem, even when they are presenting the same symptoms as a male patient. And this is played out in what's called the gender paradox. Women have longer life expectancy than men, but men have longer active life expectancy. And active life expectancy are the years that you live free and able to do basic tasks without help. Women are are living longer, but they're not living better Mm. than men. Um, Half of American women have one, if not more, than one chronic health condition. But for the last two decades, this has been twisted into men are more stoic, so they're less likely to report, and women are more emotional and more likely to complain, which the numbers don't actually show. Even if that were true, the number doesn't, they don't show that. Well, I want to unpack that for a second, this idea of women complaining
3: I once had a friend who told me that in her in her chart or whatever that her doctor basically suggested that she was hysterical or difficult because she continued to complain about pain. If you are experiencing on a scale of one to 10, 11 level pain, you're damn right I'm going to complain, right? Yes. Like, like it's no, if you like, in what world do people not complain when they are experiencing intense discomfort and pain? Right. So it, so even if this stat were true, it's
1: not. But even if it was true that women complained about chronic pain, yeah, you think? Yeah, right? Uh, and I've, I've definitely experienced that too where they show you the pain chart. And I'm like, I don't want to be seen as a wuss. Let's go, let's lowball it, even though I think it's here. Let's go lower than that.
3: Yeah, I mean, at this point I think I know a lot of women who could have a harpoon stuck in their chest. They'd be like, (laughs) like, "Eh." I don't want to be a bother, but there is a harpoon in my chest. Just when you get a minute, I would love I'm sure other people have problems. This guy needs Viagra, I get it. (laughs) When there's a
1: minute, can we address the harpoon? I'm fine. I'm fine. You're so right. (laughs) Um And these biases can be deadly. A study from the New England Journal of Medicine published in 2000 came to the conclusion that during a heart attack, women were seven times more likely, seven times more likely to be misdiagnosed and discharged than men. The root cause of this almost certainly has to do with the fact that the medical understanding of most diseases is based on male bodies. And guess what? Women might present different symptoms. Novel idea. The problem isn't limited to this, either. 80% of pain studies had only male participants, be them mice or men. The basis of most medical research comes from studies on 70-kilogram white men. It wasn't until the 90s that the U.S. federal government mandated that studies conducted by the NIH had to include women and minorities. And you can imagine how all of this impacts women reporting any pain of a sexual nature, and on the reverse side of that, how women's health almost always gets reduced to reproductive health.
3: This is such a big pet peeve of mine. I, it bugs me how women's health issues are just sort of compartmentalized as, oh, like, reproductive issues. It just, it just puts us in a box where our health concerns are other, and then there's just general health concerns.
1: Exactly. It's like we experience—we're <laughs> human people that experience— the same things, the same diseases, conditions, whatever, as men. But we might—we're made up differently, so we might experience them differently. But instead, it's like, the man is—this is—we did the studies on this one, so it's fine. Well, the
3: man is considered to be the default body. And right, so the exactly. woman's body is other, special, compartmentalized, regulated to the corner, or whatever. Medical science needs to wake the f*** up and realize that there's all different kinds of bodies— Along the gender spectrum, and that all of those bodies need to be studied, so that we can all be healthy. Just 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 assuming that the white man is the archetypal body is bullshit.
1: Yeah, and that will all fit into right, whatever results we, you got from that.
3: Yeah, because we don't. I mean, it's just such
1: obvious nonsense that it enrages me. <laughs> yes, and I do want to say that I'm not, and I don't know that you are, but not diminishing the pain of men. No, I definitely am. <laughs> Men, your pain's not real. My pain's real. No, I'm kidding. Am I? I don't know. I don't you know. tell me. Chronic pain is, in general, poorly understood and not well treated in the United so States.
3: So even, so even in men, yes. chronic pain is not well understood, well treated, and probably not taken seriously. Probably, but it's for sure not taken seriously when it's reported by women. Yes,
1: it's taken even less seriously.
3: And furthermore, when it comes to gender imbalance in terms of medical diagnoses, I could not get over this study that found that women who are beautiful are often subconsciously assumed to be healthy by doctors. Thin women might be told that you can't be sick because you look great. Whereas women who are heavier, well their symptoms are oftentimes just pinned on their weight, which is bullshit. You know, I'm I'm a thin person. Just because I'm thin doesn't mean that I'm automatically healthy or even that I'm working out or eating a healthy diet. People look at you and they think automatically, oh, if you're heavier, you know, your That's first your problem. problem is that you need to lose some weight. There was just this article in Glamour magazine where a friend of mine, Liz, was told that, you know, when she went to the doctor, they were, like, lecturing her about how she needs to have a healthier, active lifestyle. Knowing Liz, this girl does dance classes, plays soccer. She's the most one of the most healthy, active people I know. So when she said, actually, like, I am a very pretty physically fit person, they were like, oh, okay, well, and they changed their tune. So had she not have spoken up and said you don't actually even know anything about me. You're just assuming sh** yeah. about me based on how you think I present right now, based on literally nothing. It makes me so sad that medical science is getting hung up on these, these ideas of,
1: you know, looks, weight, yeah. you know, beauty, perceived beauty. We can't escape. We can't escape. We can't escape. Um, another common stereotype that women might face when they go to see a doctor or any kind of medical health professional, is that educated women are often told to get off the internet. You're on WebMD too much. You're fine. And less educated women are accused um, of being liars, looking for a disability check.
3: So it's sexist
1: and classist. Great. Yes. (laughs) Gotta get that one-two punch in there. Yeah, really gotta get it in there. Um, And this kind of reminds me of, uh, okay, I don't know, how many of you know about this? But there's this thing during Victorian times, probably everyone knows about this, but uh, sickness in women as a sign of frailty, of vulnerability, of sensitivity, and all of those things made a woman more desirable. You wanted her to be sick. Because she was fragile then, and you had to
3: well, take care of it's her. It's like that um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, yeah. where she's she's sick, and her husband is like, like getting off. on. I mean, I haven't read this in years, so this could be wrong. I think it's right, but it could be wrong her husband is like getting off on her being sick getting off on her being unable to like leave their leave their house you know and yeah. it it, and it it's awful yeah i think it's interesting to me that a woman who is sick or ill or perceived that way was like sexy in victorian times
1: yeah it it was one of those things where i felt really it's strange to read about those times because it, it feels so bizarre to me. But some women used to catch tuberculosis on purpose. Oh, my God. To look attractive for a little bit. They knew it's going to kill me, probably. But I'll look good for a little bit. And my heart is just like, that is... Die young, leave a good-looking corpse? Oh, to quote
3: <laughs> <God. Jace. laughs> Get in touch with us, jay I I didn't do that on purpose. I swear. I swear.
1: It's just meant to be, Bridget. It's meant to be. We can't deny that whatever's going on here. It's meant to be. <laughs> I found this study when doing the research on this one that I really enjoyed called The Grand Theory of Female Pain by Leslie Jameson. And I read the whole thing and I really enjoyed it because it touched on like a lot of things that I experienced when I was in high school, particularly um, and it just showed how complicated our views are on female pain. There's just so much tied up in it of not wanting to present in a particular way, not wanting people to think you're like trying to get attention or you're faking it, but at the same time, like being a certain level of vulnerable. There's a, there was a lot of stuff tied up in it. And if you're interested, I would highly recommend going to go read it. And again, this problem of not taking women seriously when they talk about their pain, it all goes back to pain during sex, um, where we started, or just in general, um, pain in gynecological problems. Though 10% of the female population suffer from endometriosis, for instance, it takes an average of seven or eight years to get a diagnosis. In 1992, the NIH had 39 veterinarians on staff, but only three gynecologist, and the first hormone therapy study using female subjects took place a year earlier in 1991. And if you're thinking in your head, hmm, when did birth control get invented? Yeah, there's a bit of a disconnect there. There is a <laughs> bit of a disconnect. <laughs> yep. Um, I Last night, I, I watched like three things on actual television now. And uh, one of them I was watching last night, and uh, a commercial came out for endometriosis. Oh, like, yeah. For it? To- like, go go talk to somebody. Uh, okay. I thought Speak you meant like-, like, yay! <laughs> no. <laughs> endometriosis is not lobbying that's somewhere. Like- <laughs> Big endometriosis. <laughs>
3: oh, I just realized earlier, I said Cynthia Bailey, it was it was cysts. It was fibroids, uh, not cysts. Uh-huh. Just realized that. I got them confused. Mm-hmm. But the point still stands. So basically, that's sort of what I was talking about earlier is that I— even though fibroids are so common, particularly in black women, I had never heard of them. I didn't know any of the symptoms or any, anything around it. And it wasn't until seeing that stupid reality show that I even knew anything at all about it. And having commercials on TV that say, do you feel this way? X, Y, Z. Talk to your doctor. Here's what you should say. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a shame that we have to train women to
1: be taken seriously by doctors. But I think that's where we're at. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that you say that because, I don't know, have you seen the commercial?
3: I think so. Is it like a woman at the doctor and it's like— And
1: her voice is like, tell tell the doctor that you
3: feel that you can't, like, yeah. you got to speak
1: up. Tell her how you're feeling. Yeah. A woman who was describing her journey to get diagnosed with endometriosis calls a time when her doctor told her, it'll get better when you've had a baby. And when I read that, I got goosebumps because I've been told the same thing. It'll get better when you have a baby. I think I was like 16. Oh, that's great. So, (laughs) thanks. That's very helpful. All
3: right. (laughs) On it.
1: (laughs) Oh, no. Teen motherhood, you say? Yes. Well, the doctor told me so. (laughs) I have
3: a prescription here
1: for teen motherhood. (laughs) My parents are like, what? (laughs) And this double standard of treatment in the medical field is nothing new. Going all the way back to Aristotle, who labeled the female body as matter, as opposed to the superior male form. Um the wandering womb, the of course hysteria during Victorian times. Most women suffering from hysteria were later labeled to be rebellious or simply not um being quiet and proper as a lady should be, but some of them almost certainly were actually sick and dismissed. Oh yes. So we've like done them a double disservice. And those women
3: like probably died from, probably <laughs> from their illness that people thought was them being emotional or being hysterical.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a great book on this whole thing, Maya Dusenberry's Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. When the American Medical Association formed at the beginning of the 20th century, she writes all about this, they commissioned the Carnegie Foundation to conduct reviews on the nation's medical programs. And it found, among many things, no, quote, strong demand for women physicians or any strong, ungratified desire on the part of women to enter the profession. Which wasn't true. Of course not. But meant women were pretty much kept out of the medical field for the next several decades. The same was true for minorities. The report suggested the country only needed enough of Minority doctors to serve their own communities. Two point nine percent of medical school graduates were women in the U.S. in 1915. It wasn't until the mid 1970s that that number even got to the double digits. Wow! Yeah, the only female acting as an institute director at the NIH in 1985 said, "quote The historical lack of research focus on women's health concerns has compromised the quality of health information available to women as well as the healthcare." they receive, Mm. and we're still feeling that today. Yeah, it doesn't seem like we've really improved that much. Not as much as one would hope. Yeah. Yeah. One of the best examples of this whole thing was the story I found about um, the attitude in the U.S. toward ovarian cancer. And ovarian cancer was called the silent killer until 2007, even though women were reporting symptoms and being ignored, it was the silent killer. more like
3: the nagging, complaining <laughs> killer am I right
1: <laughs> <laughs> the impetus for changing the whole conversation around this started um, at a nineteen ninety eight survivor conference after women stormed angrily in quote an almost theatrical embodiment of an outraged mob toward the speaker after he said he was a Harvard physician, and he responded to the question of what are the early symptoms of ovarian cancer? With this this answer, there are none.
3: So all that complaining that women had been doing was just going unlistened to.
1: Yeah, it was a weird circular. Like it's the silent killer. There are no symptoms. Why didn't you speak up sooner? We could have known. It was. I read all about it, and I was like, I'm not sure how this made sense to anybody. Right.
3: I mean, it just it made sense because it's women, and they're being discounted. Their agency is not considered. And so when they do speak up about their pain, it's also somehow still their own fault for not doing the thing they did because we can't win because we're women. <laughs> You're
1: right. <laughs> um, and one of the—the I, I, story was being recounted by a female um, Harvard physician who was watching her colleague get stormed by this angry mob, and she said she was glad that she wasn't the one up there because she would have answered the same thing because that was the textbook answer. That is what you learned, so the survivors set about changing this by sending out 1,500 surveys and they got over a 100% response rate because recipients of the survey were forwarding it to others. Um, and there are obvious li- limitations because it's survivors, it's self-selecting, but it was a start and it got rid of the silent killer nickname and it got four symptoms of ovarian cancer declared in a national consensus statement in 2007. Which is 2007. so recent. <laughs> it's so recent. But that shows that unfortunately, again, we kind of have to be our own advocates and we need to talk to each other and be this community and, like, push for change.
3: <sighs> yeah, I, I'm happy that these women did that, you yeah. know, and I, I think, I think it, sometimes it takes a big, dramatic show to get someone to f- listen if they just are insisting, you know, insisting on ignoring you. It reminds me of that Zora Neale Hurston quote, if you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. You know, oh, yeah. and, and I think that as women, we are, even when we speak up, we have to scream just to be heard. And yeah. I think that's what these women did.
1: Yeah. And if you're wondering why women have been left out, well, uh, some people have said, for their own good. It was sort of a bene- benevolent sexism thing that research could be bad for you and your hypothetical fetus. Um, Or one example somebody actually gave was there wasn't a ladies' bathroom at the research site. Oh my god! So don't we don't we don't need to worry about that? Why why go through the trouble? Ladies and their periods and or hormones might throw the research off. That was a very frequent reason. There could be
3: bears and their and the period could attract bears or sharks, land sharks. Yeah, you never know. You
1: can't be too careful with bears and sharks. That is absolutely true, Bridget. You've turned me around on this whole issue. Uh, women's bodies were frequently pointed to as being more complicated, so why spend more money studying them?
3: Okay, so speaking of the idea of women's bodies are more complicated, friend of the show, Julia Carpenter, on Twitter, once posted this absurd passage from a novel describing a woman going to the bathroom. Here's what the passage said about the difference between men's bodies and women's bodies when it comes to taking a pee. Men. They were able to conjure it up immediately. That was one of their powers. That thunder splashing as they stood lordly above the bowl. Everything about them was more direct. Their insides weren't the maze of woman's were, for the pee had to find its way through. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Julia tweeted this, saying, this is what happens when we let men write books. <laughs> Where do men think that women's bodies are this complicated maze that pee runs through? Like, what,
1: what is this? Oh, I thought that's what it was. <laughs>
3: blowing my mind, Bridget. <laughs> it just goes to show that you're so right. The idea that women's bodies are inherently a maze that we you can't even understand yeah. them and they're more complicated than why bother. I mean, it's so it's so ludicrous.
1: It it absolutely is. And um I have I have some more personal anecdotes. I feel like we could just turn this into our personal yeah. story. Annie and Bridget vagina
3: hour. <laughs> but- <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which basically would be a, a good alternate name for this podcast. It really would be. We should think about that. I'm going <laughs> to pin that for later. Um, I had really severe asthma as a kid, and I remember when I went to the hospital to take the test, um, like you had to blow into this tube, and it was really difficult, and I couldn't like even move the little thing. Um, the doctor told me I needed to exercise more, and that was the, that was the end. And later, I think it was a week later, I passed out at school because I couldn't breathe, and I had to be taken to the hospital in an ambulance. And by the time I got there, my lips were blue. It was a much more serious situation than it had been when I went in. But they just dismissed it. <sighs> the doctor, when I, when I told him about my headaches, he said it was only in my head. And I can only hope he was going for the joke there. This whole episode has inspired me because I have had painful sex and also, I can't, like, wear a tampon without extreme pain. And now, I kind of just took those things for granted. Yeah. Like, that's, that must just be me. Well,
3: that's what I was saying with my fibroids. And I just thought everybody has periods that involve horrible pain that yeah. makes you double over. Where, I mean, I used, to, I used to regularly miss school and work. And I thought, I thought that yeah. was—I did not realize that was not a normal thing. And right. it, it took what you said earlier about the women with the ovarian cancer— Advocating for each other and, and like, sharing information, that is so important because we need to share what's normal and what's not. And, you know, when you're in high school, no one's talking, like, you're not talking with your friends about what it's like to have your period. I didn't even know that what I was experiencing was super atypical.
1: I thought, we'll oh, get ready for this, Bridget. I thought periods were a myth made up by my big brother in specific. And I thought they weren't really a thing that happened. So lo and behold, May fifteenth, when I was in fourth grade and I was at a—you remember the exact day? Yes, because I was at a field trip, the Nutcracker, and I was wearing w- white tights. Oh no! You better believe I remember the day. And then a month later, when it happened again, I cried even more that time because I thought it was a one-time deal. I didn't know it was the rest of your most of the rest of your life. Yeah, I feel like there's still so much mystery about the female body. Just or yeah bodies in general too, but. Particularly, there's a lot more to be done to understand this. And I think we dismiss, too, like, I've broken up in relationships over, over this. Pa- over painful sex? hmm
3: Well, I think if you have a long-term, chronic, painful sex issue, it does require a partner who is sensitive and understanding and that you can communicate with. And yeah. I can only imagine that it would if you did not have those things, having to sort out, you know, the source of your painful sex it's only exasperated by a partner who is not kind of there for
1: you. It, it's hard to explain. Uh, somebody wrote an article. I, I think it was the Huffington Post one I mentioned earlier. But she was just talking about how, like, even if the partner is supportive, you feel personally like you are failing. And it's hard not to, one, you start to dread just the relationship in general. And even if the person is, like, saying all the right things, you get in the back of your head, like, I am not living yeah. up to... So, and then you'll take it out on them, and it's just a vicious thing.
3: Yeah, and I think, I think a part of it is also shame, you know, yeah. feeling. I think that women especially feel shame when they're not able to perform sexually in the way that they feel they are, quote, supposed to. Yeah. And that, even yeah even if your partner is super supportive, saying the right thing, we live in a society that says that women need to be, you know, sexy for their, their partner or their man or whatever, yeah. whenever, and they need <laughs> to be able to do it you know, a certain kind of way. And I can imagine feeling a lot of internalized shame and feeling like something was wrong with me if I was not able to perform, quote-unquote, in that way. Because we've been pressured. I mean, if you watch TV, you would think that a woman is ready to have sex all day, every day, and that all the man has to do is basically, like, look in her general direction and she has an <laughs> yeah. orgasm, and it goes smoothly every time. And Oh, don't get me you know, started on that. N- nobody ever farts or... <laughs> you know nobody ever poops a little during anal sex or whatever it's yeah. like you would imagine like you would if you were to take the media's interpretation of sex at face value it's no wonder that people would internalize a lot of shame around the
1: inability to function in in a specific way oh yeah think of all the magazine covers when you're waiting in line ladies here's that a pleasure man doing this this and this okay well um, we still have we still have a little bit more to say hopefully some hopefully some hope for the future But first, one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
2: Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts watch what you want when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4k picture and sound for every budget with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.
1: Hi I'm Antonia Blythe and this is 20 questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree.
0: Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. All right. So if you're experiencing painful sex, if that's particularly the thing, certainly do go to an OBGYN if that's an option for you. Um, or if it's a, more of a mental thing and a therapist is an option, do that. Um, There are a couple of steps you can take on your own. You can try using lubricant, preferably one that is water-soluble if your skin is sensitive. If anxiety is a problem for either you or your partner, or both, try to set aside times that are less stressful and, like, a good chunk of time. Um, Because foreplay is important. Sometimes it's fun to do it under a time crunch, but, you know, if you want to have a good window. Yeah, if this is a problem for you and you think that, like, having that time to sort of relax and get into it will help, Try that. Um, If there are areas that are no-goes, but others are fine, pain-wise or otherwise, communicate that to your partner. Always communication is great. Or try something other than vaginal intercourse, like mutual masturbation or oral sex. You can try taking over-the-counter pain reliever before. And if you experience pain after, you can use an ice pack or something similar wrapped in a towel and applied to the vulva. I love that because
3: I've always said my favorite Sex toy. It's communication, <laughs> it's
1: the best one out there, and it's free. <laughs> it's free. It's free. That that is a, That's a good sex toy, Bridget. I did read one account of someone getting Botox for her vagina hmm. to yeah to stop the painful contraction of muscles, and it's obviously not attainable for a lot of us, but it's worth checking out. Perhaps just reading. I was interested to read more about it. And on a broader scale, we need to start taking women's pain more seriously. We need to start dismantling these stereotypes. Going back to Dusenberry's book, she says there's a trust gap and a knowledge gap, and we need to address them both. We don't trust women, and we don't really have that much knowledge about how their bodies are working. Like worst of both worlds. (laughs) Yeah, Really, it's a very bad combination to have. We need more medical research specifically on women. As of 2009, women represented only 37% of trial subjects, and this is based on a randomized survey of federally funded research published in nine of the big medical journals. They repeated it twice and got the same results twice. That number gets even worse when you're looking at pregnant women, which have been called the most underrepresented group in the entire clinical research process.
3: Well, it's no wonder that we have such atrocious numbers when it comes to maternal health and like maternal death in this country.
1: Yeah, um, and it's strange too because I get it. On like a base level, you're afraid— to test drugs on pregnant women. How are you going to get that study funded? But at the same time, and this is in the words of um director of the John Hopkins Institute of Bioethics, quote, we learn on the backs of pregnant women while pretending we don't experiment on pregnant women. Because pregnant women do still get sick. Yeah. And we give them drugs, but we don't know how it's going. So to.
3: we, yeah, it's it's like we're, it kind of comes back to that idea of sort of being benevolent where we are pretending that we are you know, protecting this pregnant woman, but actually we are not protecting them because we're letting them die and not studying, what, not studying what's happening with them and their bodies.
1: Another thing, uh, we need more or any, because apparently there aren't any, accredited fellowships that allow doctors the option to specialize in sexual health. Currently, NIH funding goes to less than a third of female researchers.
3: What is NIH doing? This is like the third time that, you, <laughs> that something's come up where I'm thinking, any.
1: What's going on, <laughs> what you doing? <laughs> yes, uh, that is the National Institutes of Health. I should have said that earlier if I did it. And the medical field, this is something Bridget and I want to discuss, uh, that they have not, that field has not been immune to the Me Too movement either. And that has impacted the retention rates and ability to secure promotions for women or to get funding for the projects. And also, none of this matters too much if there are systems in place that prevent people from accessing affordable health care. Just saying. That's real. Yeah. Oh, and also, also, we've been talking mostly about women and cis women, particularly today, but this problem also exists for minorities and gender nonconforming folks. And I heard something on NPR recently about, like, if you're in a small town and just the difficulty you might face as a trans person, or LGBTQ at large to go to the doctor and get be taken seriously for anything.
3: And I think the bottom line just comes to listening to women. Yeah. Listen to women when they talk about their pain, take them seriously, don't pat them on the head or tell them to chill out or relax or have a glass of wine. Yeah. Listen to us. <laughs> take us seriously. Yeah. Give yeah. us money to study our bodies. Yeah. You know, listen to women. It always—it's funny how it always comes back to that somehow.
1: It does seem that way, doesn't it, Bridget? It does. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's been our our look at women's pain. This has been Annie and Bridget's vagina, <laughs> vagina hour, vagina
3: hour—a <laughs> yes. deep dive,
1: mm-hmm. a very deep
3: dive. Oh, <laughs> that didn't come out like I wanted it to.
1: Oh well. Oh well. Please, yeah, just let us know what your experiences have been, listeners. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. Or you can always email us at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Infinity Presents, a new chapter in Luxury.